0: Now you and I naturally look at any text of scripture through the lens of our own experience. And we all love the fact that the Bible is timeless. It speaks present tense to every generation of believers in every context imaginable. And in our excitement to hear from God, we often forget that this is an ancient text originally written to a specific group of people in a specific time with a specific purpose and a specific message. And so before we can discern what does this mean, we first have to ask and answer the question, what did this mean? So if we're going to get close, as close as we can to a proper interpretation, we need to study the original context. We need to put ourselves in their shoes and attempt to hear this account as um, as those post-Exodus Israelites would have heard it. Now, this sounds super overwhelming, doesn't it? Thankfully... Bible scholars who write all of these wonderful commentaries and study Bible notes have done that legwork for us. And we need to make sure that we are heeding their research and keeping that original audience in mind as we read and study the text. Now, I'm mentioning this now because it's going to have a really big impact on how we understand the idea of the image of God later on. All right, so that's number one. Number two, again, looking at some general observations. Number two, the creation account is unapologetically theocentric. And that's just a fancy way of saying that God is the main character. These chapters are about him. And this is exactly why the creation account in the Bible can feel so frustrating at times. We want it to answer certain questions questions, most of which fall under the categories of when and how. So we come to this text with questions like, when did God create the universe? How long did it take him? How did he actually do it? And what about the dinosaurs? Like, we want all the scientific data. And what God has seen fit to reveal is not so much when and how, but who and why. Who and why? Now, I'm not saying that the Genesis narrative cannot inform our understanding of when and how. But it's probably going to leave you with more questions than answers in those particular areas because that's not the point of the text. It's not primarily about creation itself. It's about God and his overall intention for his creation. Going back to the original audience... What they needed most while they were wandering in the wilderness, getting ready to enter the promised land, was not a science lesson. They needed a basic understanding of who God is and why it matters who he is. And the reason I bring this up is because if we ask questions of the text that it was never intended to answer, not only will we be really frustrated, but we can end up with some really faulty conclusions. And unfortunately, this happens quite a bit around the discussion of gender roles in the Bible. Genesis 1 and 2 are treated as the magnum opus on gender roles, and for good reason, as we will see, especially next week when we walk through Genesis 2. And there is nothing wrong with seeing gender roles in Genesis 1 and 2. The Apostle Paul certainly does. There is something wrong with only seeing gender roles in these chapters. That is way too narrow. The point of Genesis 1 and 2 is so much bigger than that. These chapters are a setup for the rest of the story of redemption, centering on God's promise to Abraham and looking ahead to its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ. So these passages inform the functions of men and women in the home and the church. They give us kind of a a general framework to, to work from, but that is not the primary question they are, this text is seeking to answer, nor is it the primary purpose of the passage when set within the larger context of Genesis. So if you're sitting in a church on Sunday morning and the pastor is preaching through Genesis 1 and 2, and one of the main points of his sermon is that women cannot be pastors or that women should not teach outside the home, in my opinion, he has utterly failed to teach this text. And it has nothing to do with whether I agree with those points or true. It has everything to do with the fact that that is not what this passage is about. All right? I'm pretty sure Moses would agree. We'll have to ask him someday. But the bottom line is, we've got to keep reminding ourselves of the author's purpose, the original audience, and what questions the text was actually intended to answer not simply what we want it to say. And this is just Bible study 101. You can take this with you the rest of your life, all right? General observation number three. The creation account in Genesis is set in stark contrast to other Near Eastern creation accounts. It's really important to remember that God did not reveal these truths in a vacuum. Israel had been living among pagan nations who had their own versions of the origin of the universe. And keep in mind that Israel had been enslaved in Egypt for multiple generations. So they had been immersed. Some of these people had grown up under a polytheistic worldview. And so one thing God is doing in these chapters is giving them a revelation of himself as a polemic or a critique of the popular theology of their day. And you need to know that every person, every nation, every culture has a theology. What they believe about God doesn't mean it's right. You can have bad theology, you can have good theology, but every culture has a theology. And so this is very much a critique of the popular theology of their day. One popular creation narrative at the time uh, of of kind of the the, this time period is is time period of the world. I don't know. Look, I'm 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 hunting for words here. They're not coming. Um, But it was the Babylonian Enuma Elish. Enuma Elish, and it's it's a wild story. the Bible's a pretty wild story, though, so that's not, that's not what we necessarily need to have against it, but it, it's, uh, it tells the story of a, a fierce, ongoing conflict among the gods. Like This is what like way, way, way long ago, all these gods were created, and they had wars, and they had battles, and they had conflicts, and the, the focus of this particular creation narrative is on the war of the gods against the goddess Tiamat. And she was the goddess responsible for all the primordial chaos. Long story short, in order to defeat Tiamat, the gods created a new god, Marduk, who defeats the forces of chaos and rips Tiamat in two. Half of her body becomes the sky, the other half becomes the land. Later on, the gods get tired of making food for themselves, so they use bones that were lying around from past wars and create humans to be their slaves. I share this with you because it's very representative, again, of the popular theology of this time. All of the cultures uh, surrounding Israel would have viewed their relationship with their gods as transactional, they would have viewed the world as, as everything that goes on as a result of chaos and disorder and wars among the gods. you know, And if they do what they're supposed to do, the gods will be happy and bless them. If they do not, they're in big trouble. And that's how they would explain the suffering and hardships that happen in the world. So it's up against this particular worldview that the God of Israel reveals himself as a self-existent self-sufficient, autonomous, and loving creator who by his uncontested word commands all things into existence and orders their design and purpose. This is not the result of a battle or a war or chaos among the gods. This is a result of intentional design. And here's the best part. The God of Israel doesn't want a transactional relationship with humanity. You do this, and then I'll do this. No, he wants communion. He wants oneness. He wants a family. We don't exist to provide food for needy gods. Our God provides food for us. Contrast can be so instructive. I've always thought the Bible's creation narrative was beautiful, but when I started to see it in light of the competing narratives of the day, I was just overwhelmed by the enormity of God's love and generosity that is put on display in this story. Psalm 113 asks the question, who is like the Lord our God? And from the very first page of the Bible, we see that the answer is nobody. He is truly a God like no other. And so make sure you are tuned into that as you read, because getting that point across is a primary function of this text. All right, well, let's go ahead and dive into our focal passage. There are so many things I would love to say about verses 1 through 25, but we're going to spend the rest of our time in verses 26 through 28 because these have the most relevance to our particular endeavor to see the worth of women in the storyline of the Bible. So go ahead and pick up with me Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and they will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them, male and female. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every." excuse me, creature that crawls on the earth. God also said, look, I have given you every seed-bearing plant on the surface of the entire earth and every tree whose fruit contains seed. This will be food for you. All right, so while by this point in the narrative, God has given form to the earth and he has filled it with these living things. So the earth started out formless and void. God has con- 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 uh, completely, completely, um, Reverse that. It now has form and it is filled. And the pinnacle of his creation is mankind. And there are a lot of indicators in the text that this is true. Uh, In the homework, I drew your attention to the fact that the whole rhythm of the passage changes in verse 26, signaling the reader that something really important is happening here. It should also be noted that this is the only creative act that is Uh, preceded by divine deliberation. So God is actually talking to himself in verse 26. Now, just as an aside, the original audience would not have seen this as a conversation among the Trinity because that aspect of God's nature was revealed later, but we have very good reason to believe that that is what's going on here. Another clue that something really special is about to happen is the repeated refrain, let there be, You see that all through the whole first 25 verses, it becomes the much more personal refrain, let us make. Furthermore, this event is given a much longer description than the previous ones. But of all the indicators in the text that mankind is the crown of creation, the most significant is the phrase image of God which is repeated three times in just two verses, four if you include the word likeness. So this phrase is a big deal, and we're going to spend a good chunk of our time unpacking what it means. Now Genesis 2, which we're going to study next week, is going to give us a better picture of some important differences between men and women. But the Bible opens with what they share. And so that is what's going to make up our outline today. Men and women share a name, men and women share a nature, and men and women share a mission. So that is kind of the main points that we're going to pull out. All right, so number one, men and women share a name. So the first name God ever uses in reference to humans is the name man, meaning mankind It's a reference to men and women collectively. We see this in verse 26. God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And then he uses that pronoun they. So it's a, collective, it's a collective man. Now we have a retelling of this in Genesis 5, 1 and 2. If you want to go ahead and turn there, it's actually really interesting. So Genesis 5, 1 and 2 says, This is the document containing the family records of Adam. On the day that God created man, there's that word, mankind, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them, male and female. When they were created, he blessed them and called them mankind. So it puts even more emphasis on this naming, this collective name that God gives to the man and woman. So we are told not once but twice that the very first name men and women ever had was a shared name that distinguished them not from each other, but from every other thing that God had made. Now, we don't want to stretch this too far. Because the Bible has a lot more to say about male and female, but it would be absolutely irresponsible for us to ignore the fact that the very first title God gives humans is a collective one that emphasizes what they have in common. And knowing this can help guard against any views of manhood and womanhood wherever you fall. On that spectrum, we looked at last week, it can help guard us against any views that would make one out to be less human or less included in God's design for mankind as a whole. That is clearly not the case. All right. So men and women share a name. Number two, men and women share a nature. So when you dig down to the very essence of human nature, whether male or female, from a biblical perspective, what you find is this concept of image-bearing, all right? So again, just I keep, I'm gonna keep directing you back to the text. Genesis chapter, chapter one, verse 26. God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, livestock, whole earth, Uh, Every creature that crawls on the earth, verse 27. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. So the big question we have to answer now, right off the bat, is what does that mean? What does it mean to be made in the image of God? Now, unfortunately... The phrase image of God is not explicitly defined in this text or really anywhere else in scripture, which has led to a lot of ink being spilled over this concept throughout church history. When you boil it all down, being made in the image of God means that we are like God, in that there are some shared characteristics. And we represent God, all right? So the two words, and these are, these are things we can know for sure. Lots of things written about the image of God. These are things that we can, we can pull out, that we can have a really, a lot of confidence that this is what is intended, right? So, so two words that should immediately come to mind when you think of image of God, it is the word uh, resemblance and the word representation. Those are your two big words, resemblance and representation and that's kind of how we're going to break it down. Let's talk about the resemblance aspect of the image of God. Both Hebrew words translated image and likeness refer to something that is similar but not identical to what it represents. And we should see those words as as synonyms. They're basically the same thing. And this is where most of the ink has been spilled in trying to specify. All right, what what exactly are the characteristics that we share with God. What what exactly are the things that that God and humans have in common? Uh, It could certainly be our intellectual, spiritual, creative abilities, our capacity to make moral decisions. Perhaps it refers to mankind's original moral purity, which was then lost in the fall and can be restored in Christ. There's lots of debates about this, but you look at all of them and they... They all make sense. It could be a little bit of all of of these things. Um, I I think what we we could say is that the image of God encompasses all the ways that we can reflect him in our world. And I think whether whether you're a believer or not, like mankind, humans, um, image God, reflect God, resemble God in some pretty profound ways. Now, let's talk for a minute about this idea of representing God. And this is, we're going to go back to that original context that I talked about. This is something none of us would know and none of us would ever think about because it's not a thing in our culture and in our time. But in parts of the ancient Near East, image of God was an exalted title for monarchs, rulers, kings, right? So it was common knowledge that only kings were regarded as sons and servants of the gods and accordingly bore their image as rulers of the earth. And they were worshipped as though they were gods. So for the original post-Exodus Israelite audience, this royal view of image-bearing is what would have come to mind for them. Image of God, king so-and-so. That that is just the, the, the exact connection that, that they would make in their brains. So these verses that are so they're so commonplace to many of us, like some of us have been grown up knowing, yeah, am remain in the image of God, yeah. You know, like we just kind of brush, we brush right by it. It would have been absolutely shocking to them. Because what Genesis 1 is saying is that all of humanity, not just Pharaoh, not just the social elites, but every human being is God's co-regent created for the express purpose of ruling on his behalf. So the dignity that God has given every human of every gender, race, socioeconomic status, it is Absolutely staggering. And we must always be considering whether or not God's heart is reflected in the way we treat others, especially the way we treat others who are different than us. Theologian Michael Bird, uh, he has written a systematic theology that I I really like. Uh, I love what he has to say about image of God. He says this, It says, the privilege of bearing God's image is democratized in the biblical narrative so that all humanity shares in it. Consequently, humanity is the cosmic media for expressing God's sovereignty and presence in the world. God has set humanity in his creation as, and I love this, walking billboards of his might and authority. So you might ask, how does the God of the Bible rule the world? Well, it's not through divine fiat, nor is it through elite kings and worldly power structures. The God of the Bible rules the world through humans who have families who plant gardens, who create neighborhoods, who build cities, and who cultivate cultures. And what's the point of all of those things? Well, God is. We are not the point. God is the point. We exist to reflect and represent him in the world around us, and that is true of every human being. So let's take a look at how we do that. So we have a shared name. uh, We have a shared nature. We are made in the image of God, meaning that we resemble him in some ways, and we are his representatives, his co-regents on this earth. And then number three, men and women share a mission. And here's where I want to confront a couple popular misconceptions about Eden. And... Some of you, this is going to be shocking, and I need you to just hear me out and then move on with me, and then you can come back to these these things, all right? I'm going to lay something on you that is very different probably than the narrative you've been taught your whole life, especially if you grew up in Sunday school and all that stuff, all right? Misconception number one about Eden. People tend to think that the entire world was Eden at the point of creation. That is not the case. The text gives specific geographical markers indicating that Eden was contained in one location. Many also think, and this is where, just hold on. Many also think that Eden was perfect in the sense of of being finished, like it was like straight out of a Lowe's lawn and garden commercial. Except, you know, a million times better. <laughs> a quick poll, just amongst us girls here. Has anyone ever seen a picture in a children's Bible or Sunday school curriculum of pre-fall, right? So pre-since, sin hasn't come into the world yet. Pre-fall Adam and Eve in Eden doing yard work, building shelters, preparing meals, or managing animals. Has anyone ever seen that photo, that picture, that rendering? Yeah, me neither. No, never seen that. They're always just standing there naked, smiling in a perfectly cultivated, self-maintaining garden. And I think most assume that if they had stayed away from that bad tree, they would have gotten to just stand there and smile forever. One of the biggest aha moments I've had this past year, and I'm actually really embarrassed that it's taken me so long to see, see this. But it's the revelation that Eden was a place of profound potential. Not perfection. Not in the strict sense of what perfection means. Which is why we have Verses 28 through 30. See, if Eden is this perfect world that just like, bam, it's there, and you just stand around and smile, the creation mandate doesn't even make sense. But that's not the way it was. There was actually work to do. Verse 28, God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls in the earth. God also says, look, I've given you every seed-bearing plant on the surface of the entire earth and every tree whose fruit contains seed. This will be food for you. There was work to do. These royal representatives have a mission to carry out. Eden needs to be nurtured and expanded into the wild, uncultivated territories beyond its borders. And so here's what we need to keep in mind as we process what scholars call the cultural mandate or the creation mandate. This is going to help us so much. We've got to get that picture of Adam and Eve standing there naked, smiling in the garden forever and ever and ever, out of our minds. Adam and Eve are not merely the first people. They are the first pioneers. They are the first pioneers. And so let's take a look at this incredible mission, this work that God gave them to undertake, which has major implications on the work God has given us to undertake as well. The first thing I want to point out is uh, a little addition we see in verse 28 that we don't see in verse 22. All right, so in verse 22, after creating the fish and the birds, the text says, God bless them. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the waters. The same general wording is in verse 28, but look closely. Verse 28 says, God bless them and God said to them There's communication There's revelation The God who spoke the entire universe into existence is now speaking to humans He is initiating conversation and he does not do this with anything else he Created Part of being made in the image of God is the capacity to know God through communion and relationship. He is not just a God who speaks. He is a God who speaks to us. He speaks to us. Don't ever get over that. It's huge. Incredible. The second thing I want to point out is the pronoun that God uses. Verse 26, they will rule. And then verse 28 said, "God says, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. So it's not, hey, Adam, you rule and subdue the earth, and here's a woman to help you do the be fruitful and multiply part. This is a shockingly inclusive text. And it is exactly what you would expect to find if the God of the Bible values women as much as he does men. And for the ancient Israelite community, growing up in a very patriarchal society, how important is this? For the Israelite men to be told right from the beginning, you need to value the women in your midst as much as you value the men because they are equally bearers of God's image and equally necessary to the fulfillment of his mission. Let's take a look at some of the verbs we see in the creation mandate, the actual work that we are called to do. Let's take a look at rule first because it's the one that is repeated from verse 26. So in verse 26, it says, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish and the birds and the livestock. And then we see this again in verse 28. He says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, on and on. Now, it's important to clarify that the mandate isn't to rule however you want to, right? So you can't kill as many animals as you want, build as many parking lots as you want, marginalize as many people groups as you want, create as much waste as you want. No. The mandate, what's implied here, is that we are to rule as God rules, How does God rule? we got a lot of verses that give us uh, clarity on that. Psalm 89, 14 is one of them. It says, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Faithful love and truth go before you. Something I came across in my research that I found really fascinating is that many theologians affirm that before the fall, all of nature actually recognized mankind as God's appointed ruler. So you know in the Gospels when Jesus commands the winds and the waves and they obey him? It is highly likely that the pre-fall harmony between man and nature was something like that. Which is pretty mind-boggling and makes what happens in Genesis 3 all the more devastating. It also makes what's going to happen, according to Revelation 21 and 22, all the more thrilling. Closely associated with the word rule is the word subdue. Subdue. Now, if you look up uh, subdue in in an English dictionary, you're going to see something like to overcome, to bring under control. I think in in our language, it has kind of a negative connotation. In fact, rule can have a negative connotation as well, which does not seem to carry over into this particular biblical context. And this is where understanding that Eden is a place of potential rather than finished perfection is really helpful. In order to expand the boundaries of Eden, there was wild and untamed land that needed to be cultivated so that it could become an environment where life could thrive and flourish. And that is ultimately the goal of subduing. Greg and I own a plot of land adjacent to our well-manicured lawn. Currently, it has a nasty pond full of green scum surrounded by lots of trees and gnarly, overgrown plants. We literally have not touched this plot of land or even walked back there like ever. We've lived in the house about five years. It's just scary. I don't want to go back there. There's bugs and who knows what. Now, what would it look like to subdue that plot of land in the sense that the word is used here in Genesis 1? Would we just come in with a giant bulldozer and knock everything down, fill the pond with dirt, and then douse it with Roundup every few weeks so we don't have to deal with any weeds or mow a lawn? Would that really be bringing that plot of land under our control so that it becomes a blessing to my family and our neighbors, where it actually contributes something to people's lives? No. No, that's not subduing, that's destroying. Subduing that land would mean thoughtfully removing and cutting back some of the plants and trees that maybe we could plant a, a big garden or, or build a playground. Perhaps there's something we could do to that pond to make it a better adapted for fish and wildlife. Subduing that land would mean working to order the chaos And make it the best environment possible for life to flourish there. That is subduing. And those of you that garden, you you grow things, you grow vegetables, you grow beautiful tomato plants. Like, you have a very tangible picture of what it looks like to to subdue. To subdue, you're taking something that's just literally just dirt and and you're making it beautiful and useful and, and helpful. Um, both to your family and and perhaps people you share the fruit of that land with, right? So that that would be the idea of subduing. What I want to propose to you is that the cultural mandate to subdue, it can take place with land, cities, communities, and nations. But it can also take place with laundry, (laughs) that sink full of dishes, that hot mess of a child who needs a bath a financial report, community sports, the department that you manage at work. That God has placed every single one of us in environments where we can bring order out of chaos and cultivate a space where people can thrive and flourish. That is God's call on every single one of our lives. And I believe with all of my heart that the most mundane tasks have cosmic significance in light of the cultural mandate. I was doing laundry the other day and I was kind of huffy puffy about it at first. And I thought, I'm like being so much like God right now. I am bringing order out of literal chaos. Bunch of clothes all scrunched up together. Nobody knows where their socks are and they now know where their socks are. Right, right, that's, that's, that's subduing, I was subduing the laundry. And think about it, we've all been through the checkout line at the grocery store with an employee that's just getting through the day, no sense of mission. And we've all been through the checkout line at the grocery store with an employee who makes the experience an absolute joy. And you walk out of there with a big smile on your face, and you like carry that with you the rest of the day. And every time you go back to that store, like you're looking for her imagine what the world would be like if everybody did that. That's the kind of thing that God is calling us to here. That's the kind of humans he wants us to be. That's ruling and subduing as his representative. Well, there's one more aspect of the mission and that is the phrase be fruitful and multiply. Now, the obvious meaning of this is have babies. Grow your family. Problem is Not every woman gets married, not every woman is able to get pregnant, and not every woman has the capacity to have a big family. And in conservative circles, this part of the cultural mandate is often taught in a way that can make women in these categories feel as though they are not fulfilling a fundamental calling on their lives as women. And so I wanna address that. First thing we need to get out of the way, the Bible wholeheartedly affirms the value of children. They are a gift from the Lord that ought to be longed for and cherished and celebrated. And so what I'm about to say does not in any way, shape, or form diminish that, okay? But when you look at this particular aspect of the mandate, be fruitful and multiply from a whole Bible perspective, I told you I'm using that phrase a lot, whole Bible perspective, there's more to it than biological reproduction. And the best example, the best way for us to see this is to look at the life uh, of Abraham, who is the very first patriarch in the Old Testament. One night, God leads him outside, has him look at the sky, and promises that his descendants will be as numerous as the stars, and that through these descendants, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. What's crazy about this is that his wife was well past menopause and had never been able to have children. Well, she miraculously gives pregnant, she gives birth to Isaac, uh, who has Jacob, who, who then has 12 sons, which, uh, from which we get the 12 tribes of Israel, and as you move through the storyline of the Bible, there's all these genealogies, everybody's having babies, and they're recorded in, in the Word of God for us, and you might be tempted to believe that God's promise is fulfilled through biological children, but lo and behold, that is not the message of the New Testament. One of Paul's main arguments in the book of Galatians is that the true sons and daughters of Abraham are those who share his faith, not his gene pool. The New Testament vision of being fruitful and multiplying is that spiritual fathers and mothers are producing spiritual sons and daughters by faithfully going out into all the world, proclaiming the gospel, and making true disciples of Jesus Christ. So Michelle Duggar with her 19 kids, maybe more now, I don't know, She has not been more faithful at fulfilling the creation mandate than the single woman who has no biological children but has devoted her life to discipling young women in the faith. There is a clear and undeniable connection between the command to be fruitful and multiply and the great commission that Christ has given his church. Biological fertility is not required. All right, so we're like full on out of time. There's more things I could say. But we would be sorely lacking in our understanding of the image of God and mankind if we did not bring Jesus into view. The most mind-blowing event in all of human history is recorded at the very beginning of the New Testament. God becomes a human. And if the essence of being human is connected in Genesis chapter one with the image of God, then we should expect this concept to show up again in relation to the incarnate Christ, and boy, do we. Second Corinthians two, four says, the God of this age is blind to the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Colossians 1.15 says of Christ, he is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1.3 doesn't use the word image, but the concept is there. It says the sun is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. So to be created in the image of God is actually to be created in the image of the sun. And the goal of all creation is for all humanity to be radically conformed to him. We see this in Romans 8.29. And I want to tell you, I'm going to throw something else kind of crazy at you. But I wholeheartedly believe that even before the fall, Adam and Eve were learning how to be like God. Christ. Discipleship is not a post-fall reality. Adam and Eve created in the image of God. We're learning how to be like the image of God, Jesus. Man, their potential to live that out before the fall is like beyond anything I can even imagine. But of course, everything changes in Genesis chapter 3. And from then on, humans are bent toward loving self instead of loving Christ. The image of God is still there, but our resemblance to him becomes harder and harder to see, and our rulership is corrupted. Thankfully, the plans and purposes of our God cannot be thwarted, He intended from the beginning that humans would rule and fully Edenize, in a fully Edenized world in perfect righteousness and justice and peace. And lo and behold, that is exactly how the entire Bible ends. Revelation 22.4 says they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. Night will be no more. People will not need the light of the lamp or the light of the sun because the Lord God will give them light and they will Reign forever. Now how do we go from the total depravity of man after the fall to that? How do we get there? The answer is the gospel. Which is way more than Jesus died on the cross for your sins that you can go to heaven when you die. The message of the gospel is that Jesus died on the cross for your sin in order to unite his life with your life so that through the personal indwelling of God's actual spirit, you can be progressively transformed into the image of Christ, enabling you to rule and reflect God through a supernatural life of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control both now and for all eternity. What God offers us in the gospel is a chance to live as he created us to live. In the fullest way imaginable, he offers us a chance to be what he created us to be. Not to go back to Eden, but to ready us for something even better. Something truly perfect. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for the great dignity that we derive from a passage like this. No matter who we are, no matter how important or unimportant others might might deem us, regardless of gender, race, financial status, education, like this passage is this beautiful equalizer. And God, I thank you for that. And I pray that you would help us to to ponder and to work out how we might live this out in the way we treat other people and the way we think of other people. Like who... Who is sitting around our table? Who is it that we will bother to talk to at the park? Who is it that we will go to the mat to advocate for? Is it only people like us who look like us and talk like us and think like us and feel like us? And if it is, Lord, I just just convict us that maybe we've 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 missed the the enormity of, of the reality of the image of God in man and the implications of that and how we treat everybody. God, I thank you that you love women as much as you love men. I thank you that from the very first page, we see that. We don't have to look hard for it. <laughs> and God, I pray that as we continue through our study and just trying to see uh, how how much you love women, how you have uniquely crafted us, how we are necessary uh, uh, to, to, to the fulfillment of your mission in the world. God, I pray that it would be rich and full and meaningful and that you would prevent us from falling off the edge because our culture makes this kind of a scary topic. Lord, keep us, keep us grounded in what you say. Make us good interpreters of your truth. Guide us by your spirit. And Lord, more than anything, ready us for the work, the good work you have for us. The work of subduing that pile of laundry or that sink full of dishes or that dirty diaper or uh, that financial spreadsheet or whatever it is you have us doing today. God, I, oh, I pray we do it with a, a, a broader, more cosmic sense of mission. This really does matter. And in even the most mundane things, we get to reflect you. That's the coolest thing. And I thank you for that. Lord, we love you. We praise you. Um, we thank you for Jesus, for whatever aspect of the image of God was was marred, polluted, shattered in the fall. I thank you that it can be fully restored in, in, in him. And I just... Uh, Thank you for the cross, for the resurrection, for the gospel. And I pray that that would remain central in our hearts as we go out of here today. We love you so much. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.